You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com. Content warning. Witchcraft, post-apocalypse, pandemics, police oppression, orgies, Nazis, sexism, and wandering monster blobs. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Perhaps you're so numb you don't suffer, he answered. Perhaps you're so numb that you don't realize that you're suffering. But I was close to her, two or three years ago. When the ice thaws a little, you realize how much our isolation from each other hurts us. That's how everybody lives nowadays, I replied. We can't stand each other's company. Yes, but it used to be different. People could share things, work together, build and create. Everything rested on that. The ties between human beings were the basis of all societies. Now those ties have failed. And we don't think or feel like human beings anymore. I was getting uneasy. It wasn't only what he was saying, it was his mere physical presence. I wanted him to go. I said, these are philosophical questions, Mr. Ames. Let's keep it on a personal level. Were you in love with this girl? The words sounded strange as they left my mouth. I don't know, he said. He was trembling, a slight tremor that came in recurrent waves. It doesn't matter. She... Don't you understand, you fool? She could take away the numbness. You're younger than I am, he went on. Perhaps that's what makes you a fool. You haven't lived long enough to learn that there's a horror underneath the ice. I sighed. I still can't take you to her. Since it's a personal matter, and not an institutional interest of the FBY, perhaps you won't mind telling me what makes you think I can. You're one of the same kind. What do you mean by that, I said. I was almost at the end of my tether. In a minute or two, I was going to try to throw him out bodily. We weighed about the same, but he was an inch or two taller, and he probably had more training in hand-to-hand combat than I. Do you think I can give you a feeling of being close, somehow thaw out the ice? You're one of the same kind as she is, but you don't know it, he replied evasively. You have all the signs. What signs? He didn't answer. I advanced a step or two towards him. He drew back a little, as if he felt the almost instinctive dislike of contact with another person that we all have. What signs, I repeated. What kind of person is Despoina if I'm like her? He had stopped trembling. He smiled at me quite cheerfully. I'll tell you, he said, because it won't make any sense to you. By the time you do realize what I mean, it will be too late. You're the same kind of person as Despoina. Despoina is a witch. Welcome to What Mad Universe. I'm Adam Prosser. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. Hello. And uh, today we're looking at a very odd novel uh, called The Sign of the Labris by Margaret St. Clair, published in 1963. Uh, This is... uh, both a very strange novel uh, and weirdly central to pulp sci-fi and fantasy 
having influenced a lot of things, even though you likely haven't heard of it. Uh, so it's uh, exactly the kind of thing we like to talk about here on this show. And we will talk about it some more right after this break. If you're a shrewd shopper, it's about to be your favorite time of the year. HyperX will be running massive sales for the holiday season. Get up to 50% off some of our most popular products, like the Ultra Comfy Cloud 2 headset, the tough, responsive Alloy Origins mechanical keyboard, and the fan-favorite Quadcast USB microphone. Sales will be going on at all major e-tailers, but be sure to head to HyperX.com and sign up for the newsletter to get the scoop on the biggest deals. Happy holidays from HyperX. Take a time machine back to before the world went to hell, around the year 2000. The 80s and 90s were so rad. The movies, the music, the TV, the games, that's what I want to talk about. If you're cool enough, join us and listen to Less Than 2000, because that's all we talk about. Adam and Chad live Less Than 2000, now part of the HyperX Podcast Network. And we're back. So yeah, so Phil, uh, you uh, were, were talking about the Sign of the Labyrinth by Martha Martha St. Clair, uh, sorry Margaret St. Clair, uh, written in uh, 1963 or published in 1963. Uh, another female pulp writer who has been somewhat forgotten by time, uh, although she was a very prolific writer uh, in the post World War II era, uh, and uh, seems to have actually had a, a, a large influence. Um, Especially, it, it seems, in uh, Gary Gygax and, and Dungeons and & Dragons. Um, uh, so you, you did not get a chance to read this, right, Phil? Uh, no, I, I've been uh, preoccupied. But uh, um, uh, looking at, uh, at your notes here, I have actually read a story by her. I hadn't realized. Um, um, I'd forgotten who wrote it. Um, is uh, The Man Who Sold Rope to the Knolls, which is a sequel to a Lord Dunsany story. Yeah. Um, Oh, is it explicitly uh, a sequel to that story? Or? Yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, I can't remember the original. The um, yeah, uh, I, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's explicit. Like it's it's uh, uh, doesn't follow the same uh, main characters, but it, it you know it's about the gnolls and it expands on those those uh, creatures um, and actually describes them because they're not described in the original and. Um, St. Clair uh, adds a bunch of really interesting, like, visual stuff to them. Like, they're, they're shaped like giant vegetables with multiple red eyes around, and they have networks of tentacles that comes out. I actually did some art of, art of that uh, years back. Yeah. They're, they're underground goblin-like creatures. Presumably, the name is kind of riff on gnomes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, and of course the, the Dungeons and Dragons knolls are totally different, uh, as we've yeah, mentioned um, elsewhere. One second. Uh, yeah, the original, uh, Lord Dunstany story was called How Nuth Would Have Practiced His Art Upon the Knolls. Right. It's about a burglar. Um, this I believe was about, uh, sorry, it's been a while, but I believe it was about somebody who tried to swindle the knolls yeah, or something like actually that. well so here's the fascinating thing about this story which i did read as well um he comes it's a traveling salesman who comes to sell rope to the knolls um and in fact he's undone because he's too scrupulous uh because he he tries to accept uh like they they try to pay him with their smallest emerald which is too much and he and the guy follows the manual of sales uh scrupulously and it says never accept uh more money than 
than is uh, needful for what your for what your wares are. Don't don't overcharge the client, basically. So he says, "Oh no, that's too much." Uh, he so he instead fixates on some tiny uh, gems, which happen to be the Knoll's spare eyes. They have gems which they use for eyes, yeah. and uh, they're very reverent of them. And of course, taking the eyes is basically blasphemous to them. So they then cook and eat him, basically, and and wrap him up in his rope and it's funny because the the title is probably a reference to uh the 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 old line about capitalists will sell you the rope that you use to hang them um, right, right. <laughs> so um but yeah it's he's actually completely honest and that's what gets him killed which is kind of funny um yes um yeah uh, on on gygax uh knolls his knolls are uh, the word is spelled differently uh with two l's instead of right. l-e um and they're like hyena monsters, or at least they became that. I'm not sure if they were originally. Hmm. But uh, Gygax did explicitly reference the Dunsany story when he was talking about them. Yeah. So. Well, and, and we'll get into this in a minute, but uh, I, I, it does actually sound like Margaret St. Clair was an influence on Gygax because this book as well has been cited as a reference on Gygax. So it's, it's quite likely he read this story as well. But yeah, as, so that's you know part of the same continuity as Dunsany as well. Um, yeah, so Margaret St. Clair uh, was born in 1911 uh, and wrote all through the post-war World War II period, um, so sort of the, the late heyday of the pulps, um, and uh, which seems to have been a common thing with uh, uh, female writers. Lee Brackett uh, and uh, um, uh, who wrote Jurel of Tuari again? I always forget her name. Uh, C.L. Moore, but she wrote in the... She wrote a lot in the 30s as well. So. Right, yeah. But then she continued to write up into the 50s yeah. and, and, and 60s. And uh, yeah, Brackett, Lee Brackett was in the 50s and 60s too. So it was kind of like the, there was a bit of a f- uh, female authorship uh, boom in uh, the late, uh, after World War II, which is when the pulps were kind of not quite winding down. There, there was like a, there was sort of a mini boomlet. But uh, I think once uh, paperback sci-fi and fantasy exploded in the 60s, it became a little bit less about uh fantasy pulp uh in uh, in the classic sense and became and moved more towards traditional publishing um and uh margaret st Clair, um you know we unfortunately don't know that much about her uh she didn't write much about herself and you know people didn't write biographies of her, biographies of her what we have of her is pretty interesting sounding um she uh she did uh write uh for the pulps without any ambition of moving up to being uh, like writing for the slicks which is i guess part of why she's not as remembered these days um but uh you know she said oh it captures the american folk tradition uh when you're writing in the pulp uh which is kind of an an interesting point she was one of the first people to sort of tie that kind of stuff to oh it's modern mythology although she did it in kind of a an offhand way i think but then that does tie in with what she's doing in this novel the sign of the labyrinth um because it is about uh witchcraft among other things um and it's got a very um i almost want to say alan moore flavor to it in the sense that he she uses um the um both she and moore use kind of the uh touchstones of a pulp uh genre or subgenre in moore's case it's usually comic uh comic uh sci-fi uh, superhero comics in this case she uses sort of uh pulpy pulpy sci-fi tropes and it, this one specifically uses post post-apocalyptic uh tropes um but they use that to to do like a a, a magical work um like they're they're referencing the ideas of magic that are f- more for initiates into 
magic, uh, basically, uh, because Margaret St. Clair was actually uh, a, a Wiccan. Uh, she was uh, she was inducted into Wicca uh, with her husband, um, took on a craft name, uh, which is let me I had this written down here. It was uh, fl- flog. Froniga, Froniga. Okay. Yeah, I I don't know. It's it's well as with uh, you know uh, Alistair Crowley. There's a certain level of just um, you know you adopt your you you reconfigure your personality when you become a magical initiate. Um, And I think that that just does sound like like a uh, you know sorceress from a pulp novel name. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And her husband's was named Wayland apparently, which uh, is literally a reference to. uh, well, maybe, or literally a reference to uh, the uh, Volsanga saga or the Wagner's Ring trilogy. Um, the, uh, but, um, or, sorry, not, not Wagner, but uh, the Norse mythology anyway. There's a Valen yeah. Smith. Um, and, um, yeah, that seems to have been, a, that seems to be a thing in magical circles, which I don't claim to know that much about, of just like you embrace a new persona and that persona can be kind of, a little bit ridiculous you 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 know especially when you got into the 60s there was an embrace of sort of the weird and the silliness um in a way that like a modern uh a modern person doing that would always try to be cool and edgy um and and in the 60s it was like no i'm count bloofer flube the 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 ridiculous you know like you you were willing to like uh like on the simpsons when homer put starts putting on the hat and says the cosmic jester is here you know (laughs) there's a level of that i think um and this is actually really interesting because the book was written in 1963 uh and that that seems to me to be a bit of a, a a key point in culture where um like literature and culture in general was kind of embracing what would become the counterculture the hippie the hippie counterculture of of and and just being willing to just be weird and and strange and and uh inexplicable in in some ways specifically to distance yourself from quote the squares um so there's a dash of that in this of course it it had been going for a while since the beatniks in the 50s um and there's there's definitely an influence on uh, of that in this book as well um but yeah it's it's uh she she's it it's got that as i say uh magic uh, feeling also if you've read grant morrison's the invisibles uh it has that as well you you adopt a new name which then transferred over into the matrix because the matrix is heavily in, inspired by the invisibles like you, you you create your own new persona and you gain abilities via yeah the use of magic yeah that, that's a thing in moonchild as well you mentioned crowley but yeah in, in the novel uh the um uh lead character um when taking part in the rite to create the moon child, um, which is a sex magic ritual. Uh, she takes on a new name and they talk about all the, you know, numerology and the name and all that. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's it's, it's, you know, as, again, as we more or less said in the Crowley episode, he's really ground zero for a lot of these ideas that are still percolating in our culture. Uh, and they really did start to explode around this point um, of, again, you know, the 60s counterculture is a whole thing, but also the idea of like uh, Wicca and the occult and magic and uh, the magic with a K yeah. magic with a K uh, that really did explode in the 60s. So she was almost and again, this is 63. So this is a little too early to see that as like anything like a mainstream phenomenon. You know, it took an it took till the end of the decade before people started publishing books that were like, you know, 
the 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 practical witch you know if you if you follow the pulp librarian uh, account on twitter they post a lot of uh, stuff that you can see from the 70s including like witchcraft guides and occult guides from the 60s and 70s where it was almost and wicca, mainstream wicca was was actually quite new at this time i'm looking it up i thought it was a little bit older but uh gerald gardner founded it in or at least announced it publicly in 1954. Right, right. In um, witchcraft, so that, that, modern witchcraft, or whatever the book was that he made, right? That was, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I knew that, uh, like, the Wiccan read the, uh, is based on, on Crowley's um, um, Do What Thou Will Shall Be the Whole of the Law. The Wiccan read adds, uh, if it harms no one. Mm-hmm. Uh, good, little, probably a good little addition. caveat there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> Though uh, will means something different in Crowley's. Um, yeah, they, they, I'm I'm simplifying it. To, yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, as we know, it's, it's complicated. It's been misinterpreted. With, of course, uh, Anton Lavey interpreting it to mean, yeah, like you know, I can do whatever Just I do want. Do what you want. I can hurt want whoever and I will want. Consi- yeah. And and want and will are are very different things in Crowley. So yeah, I. Right. But but it also not prepared to explain that right now. No, I mean, but there is definitely a branch of that whole uh, that whole culture of witchcraft, which is you know arrogant and harmful and kind of you know yeah. actually overlaps with like Ayn Rand and objectivism of like, well, I should be able to do whatever I want and to heck with anyone else, you know, kind of attitude. Uh, but this mm-hmm. this is a little more uh, more positive, obviously. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, so. Um, <clears throat> Uh, let's get to the book, uh, The Sign of the Labyrinth. Um, we will uh, actually start talking about the book when we come back right after this. If you're a shrewd shopper, it's about to be your favorite time of the year. HyperX will be running massive sales for the holiday season. Get up to 50% off some of our most popular products, like the Ultra Comfy Cloud 2 headset, the tough, responsive Alloy Origins mechanical keyboard, and the fan favorite Quadcast USB microphone. Sales will be going on at all major e-tailers, but be sure to head for HyperX.com and sign up for the newsletter to get the scoop on the biggest deals. Happy holidays from HyperX. I'm Colette. And I'm Matt. It's time to talk about the most important topic facing humanity. Video games. Oh, okay, video games. Every week on Colette and Matt have entered the chat. We have in-depth conversations about the games we're currently playing. We also talk to people who make video games as well as YouTubers, writers, and podcasters that you already know and love. We also talk about what you're playing when you join our community. Subscribe to Colette and Matt have entered the chat wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Okay, so yeah, the, um, uh, the the sign of the Labrys. Um, first of all, just for reference sake, uh, the Labrys is a double-headed axe, uh, which yeah. apparently is associated with ancient Crete specifically. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, the the labyrinth is named after the lab, or the might have been the other way around, but it's it's a related word to labyrinth. Ah, I see. Okay, and uh, that makes um, the Minotaur, you know, Minoan Minotaur, you know, Minos. Uh, is sort of like mythologically connected. Right. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense uh, because this book does uh, reference Cretan uh, culture, ancient Crete, and the the story of the Minotaur. Although there's there's no Minotaur explicitly in this book, and they don't ever. She doesn't say labyrinth, but it is definitely a journey through a labyrinth. Like that is unquestionably the plot of this book. Um, mm-hmm. And um, 
at one point the hero gets a uh, a ring which is a crucial artifact that helps him navigate the 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 underground which is um uh, a a cretan witch which is to say uh bare-breasted with this kind of a frilly skirt as it were um which is a cretan costume that we know existed yep. back in the in the ancient times uh and that's so the despoina who's kind of the the crucial um uh character that he needs to find sam sewell the lead uh has to find um is a um you know she she styles herself after a cretan witch essentially um so that is uh, uh, that is clearly intentional to, to draw parallels with the the uh the idea of the labyrinth um uh the labyrinth is also uh i'm i not sure if it was at this point but it, it's uh been a, a symbol of lesbianism like a um icon for hmm. um like you know uh you know an out lesbian will like tattoo a, a labrys on them or whatever. Okay, a uh, labrys or a labyrinth. Labrys. Okay, like the two-headed axe thing. Huh. That um, that makes me suspect uh, Saint Clair did know about that, but didn't put it explicitly in the book. But there's subtextual stuff that maybe you could draw that you could connect that with. So yeah, I'm not sure if it was at this time, but it, it definitely was by at least. I mean, probably the. 70s or something i don't hmm. know hmm. um like uh it appears and it's talked about in the uh movie bound by the wachowskis oh okay. um uh they um um what's her name sorry um gina gershon's character has a labrys tattoo and they they discuss it in one scene oh. um unfortunately apparently lately it's been uh sort of associated with turfs so Ugh. they've kind of un- um sullied that symbol so uh <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Turfs ruin everything. Yeah. They do. Well, there's definitely a um yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know if okay, so maybe I'd be leaping ahead a bit to say St. Clair was aware of it. But again, if she was into Wicca and all this stuff at the time, she might have been at least aware of the LGBT uh aspect of things and certainly there's a gender uh subtext to a lot of what's going on. Main character is a man, but there's definitely a descent into the sacred feminine kind of thing going on in this story. Uh, which is definitely clear. And again, I know that's something that's also been claimed by TERFs lately. Uh, but uh, it's here it's clearly more uh, open and inviting. It's In fact, it's not. It's, it's anti-gender essentialist because they make it very clear that Sam is a witch and he's a man. Um, <clears throat> oh, uh, looking it up, yeah, it's, it's uh, been that way since the 70s, so a little bit after this book. Okay, so. well, uh, y- you can see how this was part of the stew that probably inspired that. Like it, it pro. I'm sure there were all these specific ideas about, you know, getting transgression of gender and so forth that that are again there. That, that is part of the subtext of the book. So, like, like I say, 1963 is kind of a time when, um, like, culture was just starting to shift into some weird stuff. And it, it is also that is literally, I think, the year that the uh, Lord of the Rings was published in, uh mass market paperback in the u.s which we've i've talked about before as that kind of burst the dam for fantasy in uh in uh in popular culture in the u.s um so i think that um this was kind of probably like just on the edge of being able to get as weird as you possibly could but it's still a very weird book but it because it's framed as a pulp sci-fi rather than explicitly fantastical um that it was quote acceptable um margaret st Clair actually wrote about how she kept trying to do things that you know the the uh 
the 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 pulp uh sci-fi audience got kind of annoyed at her with because it wasn't quote serious enough uh you know very you know uh, time is a flat circle um and, yeah. and well lovecraft got the same complaints <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i i'm sure it's it, whether it was like the masses saying this or just a few grumpy people you know you don't know but like for instance one of her earliest books uh one of her earliest uh, series of short stories was about una and jick and they were a suburban couple in like a, a a future which and it sounds very much like the jetsons <laughs> when i hear it described um and um she said that they were angry at her that she she had fans writing to her grump well, not angry but grumpy that because they thought she was making fun of them like it was a mockery of science fiction essentially uh and it wasn't again taking it seriously enough even though clearly the point was sort of the the groundwork of mocking you know american suburbia suburban 50s culture which in that way i almost want to say she might have like opened the door for a lot of the sort of sitcom stuff we started to see in the 50s and 60s um and again like i say it sounds an awful lot like the jetsons what the the, the stories as yeah. they're described oh, i was i was thinking uh, adam's family and monsters and yeah stuff, that too you know the 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 uh american nuclear family but like a little bit weird yeah yeah and and even something like beverly hillbillies or something just just the idea of like well here's the baseline of a couple living in the suburbs which didn't become the baseline like she wrote those in the late 40s and arguably they that really started to take over with uh, tv sitcoms in the 50s although they did have radio sit a lot of people forget that sitcoms and and tv stories kind of evolved out of radio and that was going great guns in the 40s uh yeah I mean, there there were you know sitcoms in the fifties uh, and uh, like uh, uh, I Love Lucy and right. Honeymooners. Um, well, Honeymooners isn't suburban, but you know. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. It was it was kind of like um, like that that baseline of like you know a a, a pair of a, a suburban couple living in the suburbs um, that actually got started in the ra- on radio uh, and soap operas as well, which became sort of a a cliche of that time as well that all like we tie it to the 50s and the rise of television but it that whole culture and that whole subgenre if you want to call it that was really going in the in the 40s uh, on the radio essentially it it was almost as soon as world war ii even when i mean even when world war ii was going uh arguably but it, it really of course kicked in with uh with everyone coming back from world war ii and and the rise of american suburbia that's where it got started but it was it was building itself up before uh the 1950s um so but it's just the 50s because tv suddenly became this uh ubiquitous thing and the culture was uh was uh suddenly really uh grabbing hold of people and getting an idea of what quote america was supposed to be uh that's where it really kicked in essentially anyway um so saint Clair, uh but yeah so so she was always kind of poking and prodding at what could be done with the uh the pulp sci-fi and the way it related to culture like that's that's clearly an interest of her all the way up to uh the sign of the labyrinth so this is is this is very much writing in the uh the the uh tradition of the post-apocalyptic sci-fi which was a, a thing all through the 50s of course uh in this story what happens is that uh a uh, uh a fungus escapes from a lab somewhere we don't get a lot of details uh sometime in the future and uh it wipes out much of the vegetation on earth uh kills a lot of people uh and drives the rest of them underground into what is clearly meant to be kind of a a gigantic bunker for 
at least one city's worth of people. Uh, presumably, there are a bunch of these all throughout the world. Uh, this particular one is somewhere in Massachusetts and not far from Salem, which is a clearly deliberate choice. Um, and um, uh, so people have been living underground. Uh, one of their they've eat from stores of uh, of food that was, you know, uh, stored up from before the, the disaster. Uh, but they also some of the some of the fungus that lives in the caves is edible. Uh, and in fact, that's one of their one of Sam's favorite foods. He tends to he knows a place to go and harvest some of this purple fungus, which is apparently delicious if you cook it right. Um, but he also uh, bolsters that with canned goods that are stored up throughout the uh, throughout the uh, the system. And you know, and they're burying the dead. There's a sense that the worst of it is kind of burned through, but it is still floating around out there. And what one of the things that's happened is that whether it's actually a physical or biological after effect of the plague of fungus or whether it's just something that happened to society because of the plague uh people can't stand to be near each other as in that segment that i wrote that i read um you know people just do not like being in the same room with each other for very long uh and society is really becoming atomized they have to get together to to do work and things but everyone kind of retreats into their own little houses and their bunkers and uh you know only interacts when they absolutely have to um and oh, this is not relatable at all <laughs> yeah, to modern society. yeah I, I mean come on this is obviously out of date and does not have anything to do with how our current society feels uh after a plague but yeah wow you, you know you read that and you're like holy cow and not even like you know specifically predicting a plague or anything like that but just the way she really understands the way things like that can atomize and isolate people like she's really insightful in that regard um and 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 indeed it's again like i i I don't know her politics there's definitely a feeling throughout everything that i've read of hers of like prodding back at capitalism and in this case capitalist alienation um there's definitely a sense of like this is the culture we live in right now just highly exaggerated basically um uh, well i mean uh also the the spanish flu would have been in fairly recent memory i mean it was world war one but yeah that that's true but the the specific aspect of alienation and people just not trusting each other and there's like you know the government's collapsed but there's the fby which is the federal bureau of yeasts <laughs> which is she mentions that as basically the closest thing to a government nowadays um and they're they're definitely like up till now they've just been kind of running around trying to contain the the plague but they're definitely taking on a more sinister and more um authoritarian turn uh basically um there's early on sam keeps getting approached by this one uh agent who's sort of being a a cop and and harassing him about everything because he thinks he knows who this mysterious uh despoina is who who is a seen as like a leader of a, I, I don't want to say resistance because they don't make a big again the 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 fby is only just starting to become a bit authoritarian and oppressive uh so they don't have like the excuse of oh yeah we're trying to crush terrorists who want to destroy our way of life but he does talk about like he's kind of as a free agent he's trying to track down this this uh troublemaker named despoina who's a uh who's a witch uh, and he believes Sam is also a witch, which turns out to be correct. Uh, it's unclear whether they think witch is something that you're just born being able to do or whether it's a uh, uh, a skill that you can evolve, essentially. Again, you've got the kind of the Matrix 
baseline there of like a guy uncomfortable alienated in his life starting to be uh you know to make contact with uh an underground that tells him he has literal underground in this case who tells him that he has uh you know powers and he can break three into a a larger uh society a larger a larger view of life that that's kind of the big uh framework they're going for it's like we don't have to live this way that's that's kind of the the subtext of everything like we're living in a miserable society yes this is worse than the society that margaret st Clair herself was writing in but it's clearly paralleling the society that we're used to and suggesting that we can do better like it's it's definitely an aspirational story in that regard um so sam basically uh uh is left clues by despoina including the titular sign of the labrys uh which convince him to go deeper into the uh the the underground facility um you know and he uh he he pokes around a bit at first he gets uh tracked tracked by the 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 fbi guy who then ends up actually dying uh suddenly uh and it's actually um suggested that he's immune to the uh the plague but if he touches other people they will die of the neurolytic plague uh there's different versions of the plague actually some which kill you slowly some which kill you very fast and so they uh they believe that he's exposed himself to the the de- the deadliest kind but he's immune uh so as a result he has kind of an automatic uh defense mechanism later on they suggest that that's actually a mistake and that doesn't exist. So it gets very confusing. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of sort of stuff going on off stage that isn't a hundred percent clear. It's definitely meant to be a bit of a, um, uh, what's the word? A Gnostic book in some ways that, you know, there's a secret meaning to a lot of what's going on that maybe Wiccans can understand, or maybe writers or uh, readers are meant to kind of tease out as it were. But eventually he just, so he goes down through various levels of the, the, um, the complex. He gets to the science complex where there's a, a female scientist, uh, who wants to study him and gives him kind of cryptic clues, uh, first based on, you know, scientific analysis, but then she starts to reveal that she's a witch and she has secret knowledge and she can help him find Despoina. She eventually says she's his sister which is really weird that you didn't know this but you had a sister and i've been keeping an eye on you the whole time and it's very strongly implied she's just a big liar she just comes up with (laughs) with stuff um so i don't know if that's meant to be true or not that they are actually related but it is uh it's definitely a bit of a whiplash inducing thing from this one uh this one woman uh he goes deeper he finds uh what was sort of the uh the 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 bunker for the rich and and powerful people uh where their descendants now live as kind of um uh sybaritic luxury uh they take a drug called youth which allows them to like interact with each other in a way that the people higher to the closer to the service can't um and they have they've got like they're all it's very um uh uh logan's run they're they're a they're a sort of a, a lax civilization of young uh horny naked people who who just have orgies and go to there's a casino weirdly enough that they're always playing at uh, a woman tries to seduce sam or does seduce sam and then immediately she keels over dead which again suggests that he does carry the plague um even though again they they deny it later on and say that she oh no she just had a uh that's just what's happening to people in this uh in this on this level they don't have a 
a maintenance for their uh, their intelligence. Anyway, he keeps he keeps going down uh, a dog, <laughs> with which which apparently has a a, a special a, a brain uh, addition which makes it super intelligent. Guides him to the next level. He has to keep finding secret passages to each level. Oh, uh, like a boy and his dog, sort of. Yeah, actually, I'm I'm wondering if Harlan Ellison read this and it, it inspired him because it does have that. Uh, that aspect to it the dog is not uh, telepathic but it does seem to be super intelligent um, but still margaret st Clair had, had grounds for a lawsuit against uh... <laughs> yeah it's it's different enough the dog is is almost like an animal companion who like it in this case the purpose yeah, is yeah kind i of know a, yeah. i know i'm just yeah it's just it's just making a joke on Ellison's yeah. uh, uh, litigiousness. Yeah, but it is definitely like riffing on the idea of like, oh, an animal. You'll meet an animal in the woods, and they will guide you to the next, uh, you know, stage of the initiation. Both in you know folk tales, but also in you know magical initiations. There's often a a magical familiar. I think the dog is meant to be as familiar, essentially. Although it it only appears in basically one chapter. Um, and then he gets a little bit deeper and he goes into uh, what was apparently the presidential bunker uh, when all this happened, which is literally guarded by like uh, uh, machine guns and, and weaponry and stuff, which he uh, he's he's able to pass through because his witch abilities are starting to develop at this point, which include the ability to sort of have a weird X-ray vision. He can see through skin and rock and things. Uh, he can shift shape a little bit, or some of them can. I can't remember if he can shift shape at this point. Um, and, uh, oh, another Cretan uh, reference is there's something called bull leaping, which is which means uh, by it, he doesn't have this, he definitely doesn't have this ability at this point, but eventually he discovers he can do the bull leap, which means he can literally leap his consciousness into someone else or something else and control it, um, which he does to uh, the villain at the climax. Um, and that's, of course, the, the Cretans uh, famously uh, had a sport where they would leap over, a bull would charge, and they'd, it, they'd leap over the bull, um, which evolved into uh, bullfighting in the modern day, um, or it's believed it was an inspiration for bullfighting. Um, but yeah, so um, anyway, he gets all the way into the presidential bunker, which is abandoned at this point. Uh, it's unclear what happened to the president. If there, this is this is only supposed to be about ten years after this devastating plague, uh, so it's unclear how you know society changed quite so much in ten years. But I guess it was a pretty devastating uh, pseudo apocalyptic event. Um, he does encounter Despoina, who essentially uh, ritually inducts him, although that that's not clear that what's happening into being a witch. And after that, his powers are uh, advanced a lot and he ends up back in the, um, back in his home on level F, which is the one, the residential level where he lived. Uh, but now his whole world has changed and he's, uh, he's being chased by the FBY. He meets uh, the other Despoina's people and he meets Despoina herself with a little bit more of a, um, uh, 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 a straightforward guide to helping him get to the surface. And from there, it's sort of a race to the surface um, and to find um, some of the other secrets that were left behind by the, uh, by the um, American government as much as it still exists. Um, and they find a, a dead guy who has like the nuclear codes on him, basically. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's the plot. So it's a pretty short book. And again, it's got, it's that whole thing of like, they're hitting a lot of, um, 
tropes of pulp sci-fi, but it's got a secret other meaning. Uh, that's why I, I feel like it's got an Alan Moore, Grant Morrison feel. Uh, also, we've talked about uh, how we probably will never do the Book of the New Sun on this show because there is like an entire podcast devoted to it. But having read the Book of the New Sun, uh, it does some of the same stuff, which is that it it um, it it's a post-apocalyptic story and the hero is kind of wandering through this ruins of a civilization which is now incomprehensible and there's kind of strange stuff going on and the hero only gets a glimpse of it and we the reader have to kind of use our uh we we really have to piece together what's going on if there is even a real explanation for what's going on and what's what's happening just seems kind of weird and mystical more than anything both in terms of what's actually literally happening and in terms of the thematic meaning of what's going on so in this case saint Clair is writing it as like a wiccan text with a lot of uh wiccan subtext i guess uh if i'd really been prepared properly i should have read the uh gerald uh, gardner book <laughs> so i understood kind of the wiccan uh uh, imagery and ideas that are that are in there but i know enough about sort of magical initiation and stuff to see that uh she's clearly got a lot of that uh going on in the book itself um it was um uh just a a really fascinating book and again it's like in my brain i was thinking of it as a 70s era book and then realizing it's 1963 <laughs> it's it's way ahead of its time it's it's a very uh you know we think of that as a very um as a very straightforward and sort of uh left-brained period for literature uh but there was this very strange uh, uh subculture that was bubbling up and finally came into being in the 60s it was going all through the 50s and 60s for some of the weirder uh corners yeah i mean we, we read the nova trilogy and stuff like that yeah exactly Nova Trilogy, um, even something like Alfred Bester is, uh, so I saw someone tweeting yeah. the other day um, how, like, again, that's, in, in on one level, it's classic pulp sci-fi, but the ideas are very weird and new wavy and cyberpunky and modern. Yeah. They don't feel like 50s pulp sci-fi ideas. They feel like uh, a bit more dreamlike and, 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 that, and again, this was the 50s when he wrote it. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about uh, Dungeons and Dragons connections. Do you have any uh, uh, it's, specifics? Yeah, it's just apparently uh, New- Gygax did actually say uh, that this was an inspiration for him. And again, the fact that she wrote about Knowles uh, makes me suspect uh, it was part of the continuity. of. St- I, Gygax must have been very well read, honestly. Uh, he must have read basically all the pulp sci-fi fantasy stuff out there because a lot yeah. of it seems to have fed into, into Dungeons and Dragons. And... Um, uh, the main thing here is just uh, the construction of a dungeon, essentially. Uh, definitely feels like it's a series of random encounters as as uh, the main okay, character yeah. descends through a dungeon, through secret passages that have to be found out, uh, surpassing traps, especially in the lower levels. There's some other stuff I didn't talk to you about, like, um, like there's a... A swarm of rats uh that have become sort mm-hmm. of a collective intelligent consciousness on the on the science level again it's like white lab rats that have been left to run around and have become oh, but also um sort of related to the idea of rat kings yeah yeah that that's definitely like it's definitely uh how we think of rats essentially um and a yeah, little but no the the idea of rat kings where they're um I'm not sure if it actually ever happened but like their tails get stuck together right. because of all the excrement and mm-hmm. it's like this 
this one thing that's just a bunch of rats attached to each other yeah but yeah act like one animal that sort of thing yeah exactly um and also makes me think a little bit of the movie us of like an abandoned complex full of people who are part of an experiment in that case it's bunnies um and it's like a little ecosystem that evolved out of a out of a laboratory that was <laughs> let loose essentially um right it's uh it's it's got that feel to it very much as well um and then there's people who randomly help you or help him the main character uh there's actually people who sort of pop in and just say uh, do you know where joe is or whatever and he's like no and they vanish and you never hear from them again she mentions a uh, uh the the scientist mentions uh uh like some kind of mutant blob that's roaming around the science level that we never see does not play a role in the story um oh so like a gelatinous, a gelatinous cube. Cube. Well, i guess those don't those don't wander but yeah <laughs> a wandering monster of some kind anyway yes definitely <laughs> um and yeah it's 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 got that very much like in a in a sense, it feels a bit like a uh, a role playing game campaign <laughs> that somebody's just transcribing. Uh, but again, there's more like literary subtext going yeah, on. Yeah. But it is it has well, that feel as, as a story anyway. Yeah, uh, Dunsany wrote a story called um, um, "The Fortress Unvanquishable Save for Sacknoth," which really just reads like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, like a jun- dungeon crawl. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was Dunsany as well, and I mean, if we know Saint Clair was influenced by Dunsany, you can see it. Like he 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 often wasn't big on plot; he just liked a little, yeah. you know, li- these little weird... vibe space storytelling. Yeah, v- vignettes, little little yeah, little feels feelings and stuff like that. It's one of the things I like about Dunsany, honestly. Um, so this has more of a plot, but it definitely does have that sort of, and then of a weird thing happened and then another weird thing happened and then another weird thing. Happened. And it's, it's united by, well, it, it really helps to have the structure of like descending into the, again, labyrinth, even though it's not called that descending deeper into the, you know, to the heart of things and then ascending back up to the, to the, to the, to the surface. Ultimately, of course it ends with them out literally on the surface, looking at the stars, which is pretty straightforward imagery wise. Like they've, and, he, he's emerged into I- knowledge. Campbellian sense, you know, going into the underworld, part of the hero's journey thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this would have been before uh, uh, Joseph Campbell, because uh, he wrote yeah. in the early uh, 70s, I, I believe. Again, like, uh, Joseph Campbell, it's not actually as universal as he claimed, but, like, mm-hmm. it's a good... Uh, it's not it, yeah. Yeah, well, no, Campbell. It, it, no, you're He's you're right. Problematic, but yeah. Yeah, no, Campbell. Uh, I think has been heavily reevaluated in more recent years because, um, like he did, he did some, yeah, as you say, problematic stuff. He he apparently somebody asked him about, okay, well, that's the male journey. What's the female journey? He goes, oh, there's no female journey. That's not a thing. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like that's obviously wrong. If he's looking at folklore and and you know uh, synthesizing it into one giant narrative, you you have to look at the female and i mean it's it's always a problem to look at gender essentialist stuff anyway but i mean there's 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 clearly uh he had all these biases in his viewpoint i mean he yeah, made some... well i mean he was like friendly with nazis and stuff like he, he was very problematic i, I think um, you're thinking of Jung, not campbell campbell came no no later, Ca- campbell had um yeah some unfortunate stuff Oof. um but uh he was he was uh, very conservative in his uh, yeah. personal politics, um, but um, yeah, I, I think uh, the the Campbellian hero's journey is like a good guide for screenplay writing. Mm. But like it's it shouldn't be this it shouldn't be um, 
um, like a rule that you have to follow that oh, some people treat it as. Absolutely. Well, I, I always say, I mean, this is the problem because, of course, George Lucas read jo- Joseph Campbell and based Star Wars on it. And this is coming out of that whole same stew that K- Sinclair was talking about where, you know, pulp sci-fi, the link between pulp sci-fi and folklore. And, uh, you know, someone like Jack Kirby observed how comics are modern mythology and tried to capture that with things like the New Gods. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, Lucas was translating that into film form and he was using joseph campbell very explicitly uh his ideas to tell a story which is a very good idea in 1977 but unfortunately one of the things that happened because star wars was such a huge success uh is that everyone in hollywood kind of went oh we found the new bible that we can use to write stories from and this is the only thing we ever need to write a story or at least a a, a genre story because it's it gives you all the beats you ever need to write a story and and so as a result um, you get stuff like Aragon. Yeah, and 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 even like, even even using Campbell as the basis for analyzing folklore or even modern fantasy that came before Star Wars, uh, you're flattening a lot of stuff and ignoring a lot of deviations from the Campbell model. Like um, Lord of the Rings does not; it, it has elements of that Campbell referenced, but it's missing a lot of the classic stuff. There's no there's no real like uh, chosen one narrative. There's no real um, you know, um, uh, initiation per se. Um, there's like, you have to stretch a lot to make some of the parallels for something like Lord of the Rings or for the Narnia books. Um, like for, for, uh, Lovecraft or Arbery Howard or, uh, yeah. And another thing like, um, Campbell's like a lot of the descriptions are like very vague and can apply to anything, but that's like not really helpful. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You can if you can apply to everything, then it's not very specific in explain in an explanatory way. Yeah, exactly. It's it's more of a you know fitting torturing reality to fit the theory at, at a certain point than vice versa, um, which is definitely like. And again, it's not that he didn't have a point about the idea of oh journeying into the underworld and you know rescuing the princess and like these ideas being recurring tropes throughout world literature but at a certain point you have to say okay well let's treat this a bit skeptically as well and not act like it's an absolute all-consuming thing which i think we're finally starting to do a little bit more of in in storytelling and genre storytelling but yeah like from the 70s through the 80s and even into the 90s you you know everything was star wars like you say it was like that was the that was the go-to which by which we mean everything was joseph campbell um this is more interesting in a way because it's using um rather than joseph campbell it's using again the wiccan and the initiation uh uh symbol symbols and ideology from this uh from magic and witchcraft um which which is something that has been done going much further back um i've always remember hearing that mozart who was a uh, like apparently a lot of people uh, used to put masonic ideas in in stories mm-hmm. and in like things like paintings um uh, mozart's the magic flute i believe has been interpreted as having a lot of um masonic imagery and and symbols and that it represents yep. sort of a masonic rite of initiation i guess so again you have a rite of initiation that's a recurring thing and of course going all the way back to gnostic uh christianity and, and other things like uh, other non-western things like buddhism and and <clears throat> And, uh, yeah, mystery religions in general, which w- Wicca is one. Right, right. Um, yeah, I don't know to what. Yeah, Go ahead. Yeah, like Wicca, like there, there are things that they're not. Like it's it's all been released since then, but like there's 
um, it's like uh, you're you're not supposed to know about certain aspects of the religion until you reach higher tiers, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Wicca's popular enough that like all that stuff's been leaked, but uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, right. Or I guess like Scientology. Yes, yeah, sci- I was going to say cults. And Scientology have they usually go with a Gnostic uh, thing as well. Of you know, once you get high enough in, you get the, the real secret knowledge, and it's yeah, which is of course sometimes because if you presented it right away people would go uh that's crazy i'm not part going to be part of your cult um but um <clears throat> i i don't think wicca's is that crazy no 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 wicca scientology my, my general again i i don't know anything about gerald gardner uh but you know wicca seems to be generally pretty um pretty positive i'm not going to say any mystic uh belief system can't be twisted and used for for bad stuff but um you know, it's it's generally pretty chill from what I've seen, and and Margaret St. Clair definitely seems to have been um, chill and good about this stuff. Um, so, um, props to her. Anyway, um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating book. It's 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 really like, uh, you know, I've been I, I finished reading it a couple of weeks ago. I've, I I keep sort of thinking about it and going, you know, it's a, what what does that mean? What does that mean? And I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't reveal itself very easily. I, again, I guess if I'd st- turned and studied wicca maybe i'd get it a bit better but um even then i don't think it's meant to reveal itself easily to the reader i think it's meant to be like um something that you you meditate on and and read it read into and and as i say saint Clair was very private both in her private life but she didn't talk that much about her work partly because she didn't get a lot of uh you know she didn't get interviewed a lot or or like people didn't pay as much attention to her perhaps as some of the the people we see as stalwarts of the genre um but i think she definitely deserves a uh, reconsideration i think uh you know this is this is really fascinating and i think uh one of several uh, female pulp science fiction writer i'm happy that we've been able to uh put a bit of a spotlight on for this uh for this uh for this uh, podcast so yeah um yeah, uh, <coughs> sounds very interesting. Uh, th- this is one that I would have liked to have read, but uh, for this podcast. But I, I have been uh, uh, busy, simultaneously busy, and having problems sleeping. So yeah. sorry about that, everybody. No, but uh, no, that's fine. Uh, maybe during the break, you could, you might want to check it out. It's pretty cool. Oh yeah, yeah. I, this this uh, seems like something I'll, I'll want to check out on my own. But uh, yeah. Uh, well, I guess we've reached the lowest level of our understanding, and we can't reveal to you any of the mysteries that lie beyond, so we'll just abandon you here. Uh, we have been fifth-level witches, Adam Prosser and Philip Rice. Our producer and engineer is a fungus among us, Alex Ross. And the secret song of the craft was written by Jack Furick, who also did our theme song. Uh, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon for the special initiates. Uh, it helps us pay our hosting costs and whatnot. So if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, uh, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and other things like illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, if you go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice with one L or Adam Prosser with two S's, or uh, you can go to what-mad-universe.pinecast.co for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spear Hafok with an F A for Philip. That's Spear Hafok oh, um, A. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I'd like to. Uh, um, this is a bit uh, not really to do with the topic of this episode, but uh, uh, Kevin O'Neill, the artist on League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, passed away this week, and I thought, uh, as of recording, and uh, I just thought I. 
I wanted to mention it just because we've mentioned League of Extraordinary Gentlemen on so many episodes of this show. Um, it's a big influence on my own like comics work and stuff, and like uh, I don't know, R.I.P. to one of the greats. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what what um, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is something we recurring, and in fact, it's probably one of the big things that got me into pulp and sci-fi. Uh, yeah, same. Stories. So, uh, like, yeah, I, I had not heard of like Tharks and like you know Barsoom before I read Volume Two. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. So yeah, if obviously if you haven't checked out League of Short Gentlemen, which I'm sure most of people listening to this have, but if you haven't, check it out. He also had a uh, uh, ongoing comic in 2000 AD called Nemesis the Warlock, which I've only seen a little bit of, but it was pretty dazzling uh, stuff. Uh, so check that out and as well. Martial law seems to be well regarded. Oh yeah, martial law. I haven't been able to track down any of that cheaply, but um, yeah, martial. Is it available? Uh, Can you get? I, I don't know. I, I'm going to go look for it. Uh, but it was definitely a big inspiration on all the sort of subversive superhero yeah. stuff. It's like I think it even predates Watchmen, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, it, uh, from my understanding, it's it's like the boys. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's very much a a, a, a violent subversion of superheroes, but long before everyone started doing that basically um so i'll have to check that out and again you can uh, check out heroeslive.tv where i'm the comics editor you can read uh, my comics including night beach and starforce pentacle and phil's including the apex society uh you can check that out by subscribing um and uh, until next time uh, we'll see you on the surface